Well, we come today now to the second message in Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 4 to 7. Um, last week I said that I thought the main point of this section, we look at 1 through 10 in chapter 2 as kind of a whole section, and I said that the main section in this verses I thought was in verse 5 when Paul says that God has made us alive together with Christ. Being made alive or brought from spiritual deadness into spiritual life needs to happen before you and I can experience God's goodness and his blessing in the ways that Scott talked about from Psalm 103. We don't experience or know those things unless we are made alive. That's why I think this is the central point of this. If this goes away, if there is no being brought to spiritual life from deadness, there is no hope of enjoying any of these things or seeing any of these things or experiencing anything from God. Imagine if God had promised us a beautiful inheritance, Psalm 16, right? We have a beautiful inheritance. What if he had done that but not acted to bring us to life? Kind of like a bully who takes the toy and puts it just out of reach. Can't quite get at it. That's not what God does. God, we saw in chapter one, gave us an inheritance, sealed it with his spirit, and now he goes beyond just giving us something. He gives us the ability to come into the inheritance. That's what the being made alive is is God saying, I have given you, I have promised you, I have guaranteed you, and now. I've made you alive so you can actually experience the things that I've promised to you. This is what I think we're going to see this week. Paul told us last week about our helpless position. We looked at one through three, saw that we are dead in sin. And now by way of contrast, we're going to see God make us alive this week. So if you haven't done so yet, I'd invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to split these verses into two different points this morning. Verse 4 and 5, we're going to see grace in the past. And then 6 and 7, we will see grace in the future. Grace in the past, grace in the future. Let's read this section together. I'm going to read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. So please follow along as I read. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in whence you much walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so thankful for this text. I'm so thankful for the timing of this text. That in your providence, you bring us here today. And we look and we see the way that you have acted in grace in the past by raising us to life. 
And Lord, if you were faithful to do that work in the past, we know that you will be faithful to do the work in the future of bringing us to glory, of offering us an inheritance, of displaying your grace to us for all of eternity. Father, I pray that this morning you would work into all of us an eternal perspective. Help us to view the events of our nation and our culture and our world through the lens of eternity. That this world is just a blink, a snap of the fingers, but you are eternal. So as we study, as we learn, as we read and hear this morning, God, by your spirit, work this truth into my heart. Work this truth into these brothers and sisters' hearts. And I pray that we would come away knowing more of you, but not just knowing, Lord, loving you. Loving you and praising you for what you've done. We ask that you would do this for the glory of your name. And through Christ we pray, amen. Amen. Well, let's start in verse four. We're gonna see this first point, grace in the past. Grace in the past. Let's take the first phrase here in verse four. But God being rich in mercy. I think in an attempt to articulate the contrast as clearly as possible, this statement starts with these words, but God. You've probably heard people talk about this and preach on this, but these words, and I'm thinking about this this week, I'm not sure if there's other, two other words that carry the amount of hope and joy and comfort that these words give. Remember what we looked at last week. We left on a pretty bleak note of deadness in sin. And Paul now is drawing attention to the contrast to show us what God has done. You were dead in sin, but God acted. You were lost in darkness, but God intervenes. We were without hope in the world, as Paul will say later, but God enters. And in his great mercy, he does what we could not do. You know from reading the Bible that we don't have in ourselves the ability to bring ourselves back to life. God needs to act. God needs to intervene and rescue us from the darkness and bring us into light. Paul doesn't leave this vague. He doesn't say, well, you were dead in your sins, and then something happened, and all of a sudden, poof, you're alive. Hey, that's great, now let's move on. No, he, he tells us it was God who did this. God intervened. God made us alive together with Christ. He is so eager to give glory to God that he does it at every opportunity that he can. These words, but God, carry a tremendous amount of meaning and significance. Paul is illustrating the total contrast between darkness and light. Elsewhere we read, what fellowship does light have with darkness? I know the answer, and it's none. So Paul is making this contrast to show us, you were dead in your sins, something happened. What happened? God made us alive. That's why I think this is a central point, because it's such a huge point. He now goes on in the verse to describe who this God is, what he's like. Look at this verse again. But God being rich in mercy. God has described several, over 40 places in Scripture as a merciful God. Scott just read this in Psalm 103. 
Here's a couple of examples. God describes himself in the scriptures as merciful, and also the writers of scripture attribute mercy to God. Exodus 34. Moses is talking to God. God had called him to do this work in Egypt, to rescue the people, to lead them out. And he's going, who am I supposed to tell them? Like, why should they believe me? Who are you? And what does God say as a self-revelation? He doesn't come to Moses and tell him, I'm the God of wrath and anger, cloud and smoke. What does he say? Look at this. Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God's first revelation of himself is that he is a God merciful and compassionate. Deuteronomy 4 31, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. We come into the Psalms and we see this. Psalm 86, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious. Over and over again we see this attribute of mercy to describe who God is. Here in Ephesians 2, Paul is not content, however, just to simply attribute this to God. Well, this is one of his attributes, God's merciful, therefore he does this. He uses a descriptive word to help us understand the measure of this. He says God is what? Rich in mercy. Well, what is mercy? You could probably define it just given the text that I read. What's the common theme in all of those talking about God's mercy? Mercy is not receiving from God what we rightfully should receive from God. Namely, the punishment for our sin. It's withholding something from us that we should rightfully receive. Psalm 103, I know Scott just read this, but I, want, I think this is one of the clearest descriptions of God's mercy, and I want to read it for you. It's just a couple verses. Psalm 103, starting in verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious. Now, here's what that means. Slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his angle forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. That is what the mercy is. The mercy of God says, I could rightfully and justly punish you for your transgression, but in my great mercy I will withhold that from you. And by Paul saying that it is the riches of mercy, it means that there will never come a time when you and I stop experiencing the mercy of God. God is not poor. He does not lack anything. More than that, he's also generous. Paul says God is rich in mercy. He's saying that although God could have left us in the deadness of our sin and done no wrong, God's not obligated to reach down to us. But he did. Let's read the rest of the verse. We'll kind of put this together. Verse 4, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Now we see some of the motivation in God's act of extending mercy and saving sinners. And I don't even know if motivation is the right word. 
because of the way that you and I use the word motivation, um, I could be motivated to act for a number of different reasons. Right? I could, I could be motivated to act because of fear. I could be motivated to act because of love or because of anger or hatred or a sense of protection. There's all kinds of things that can motivate me to act. Or I can act because it's who I am. You kind of see the difference there? And I think when we talk about God's love, because of his great love, that's why he did this, I think we should think about it not because he was compelled to by something, like someone reminded him, hey, remember, you're, you're loving and you have to do this. No, I think in God doing this and extending mercy to us, he does that because that's who he is. Not because there's something else forcing him to act that way. So when I say motivation, I mean it's a display of what is already in God. Not something outside of God that he's like, oh yeah, I should probably do that because I think I need to. This is God displaying his character. Again in 4, Paul's using descriptive words. He said it's God's great love. Because of the great love of God, he acts. You noticing this pattern, even in these few verses, we see the riches of his mercy, we see the greatness of love, we're going to see the immeasurable greatness of his grace in the future. What's Paul telling us by doing this? I mean, he could have just said mercy, love, grace, but he doesn't. He puts these descriptive words in there. And when I read that, I think abundance. I think no lack in God. He didn't just show love, he showed great love. He didn't just show mercy, he shows the riches of his mercy. We should read this section, especially in contrast to the first three verses. This is why we preach the way we do, through the text, so that we can look back and forth and see, okay, we just saw this, that we were dead in sin, but now we see the riches of God's mercy towards us. We see his great love that was leveraged towards us. And in his mercy, God reaches down and makes us alive together with Christ. What an example of the kindness and the generosity of God. As we move on here, Paul again includes himself in the context as we keep moving in the text. He says that even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. When we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive. He's right there. As I said before, this verse, this verse 5, I think is the main point, the main focus of what we're supposed to add, uh, understand here. If this isn't included, like I said earlier, we aren't raised to newness of life. We don't have the hope of experiencing the goodness of God. In chapter 1, we saw really similar language. If you remember in the end of chapter 1, um, we saw about God's power raising Christ from the dead. And I want to show you something. So just look back on the other side of the page or turn your page back to Ephesians 1. And I'm going to start in 18 and just read a couple verses because I think this is a really important thing that Paul's drawing out. Ephesians 1, starting in 18. Having the eyes of our heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? 
when we looked at this text several weeks ago, we saw and celebrated the power of God at work in Christ in raising him from the dead. And in chapter 2 now, that same power that raised Christ from the dead is working in us, bringing us from spiritual deadness into spiritual life. What Paul is articulating by putting these two passages next to each other, I think is one of the greatest realities in the Christian life. Maybe the greatest. What is it? You've heard me say this. What happens to Jesus happens to us. What am I talking about? Union with Christ. That's what union with Christ means. That what happens to Jesus, what Jesus possesses, When we are united to him by faith, which is a way of saying when we come into the family of God, everything true of him becomes true of us. So, when we see this here in Ephesians 2, I think we are seeing that play out right in front of us. Whenever you read the words in Christ, or in him, or with him, that's referring to our being united to him. It's saying you were this with Christ. In other words, same as Christ, same to you. Okay, when we read this, you might ask, okay, well, why, why draw attention? Why point out that we're dealing with union with Christ? Because you and I don't have any righteousness on our own, but Jesus does. You and I don't have the right to approach God as sinners, but Jesus does. You and I don't have hope of sin forgiven or relationships restored or debt repaid or anything on our own but in Christ. (laughs) All of that is not only possible but it is graciously given to us. That's why it's important. That's why it's important to know that you, if you have put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus, will experience everything that God has promised because of Christ. This is what union with Christ is. Christ is the one who reconciled us back to the Father. We're going to see that as we get to the second half of chapter 2. And because of this marvelous reality called union with Christ, we, who trust in Jesus, now call God our Father. That's why it's important. That's why it's important that we know what happens when we are made alive. Paul now adds this phrase, the end of verse 5, by grace you have been saved. And it might seem a little out of place or maybe a little bit disjointed because he's going to deal with that more thoroughly in verses 8 and 9. And I think what's going on is that as he is writing, and I kind of alluded to this a moment ago, as he's writing and he's thinking about these realities, Paul knows about union with Christ. He knows about justification by faith. He knows about the redemption that is in Christ through his blood. And as he's writing, I think he almost overflows. And as he's writing, he cannot help himself but to say, all of this is because you've been saved by God's grace. It's almost doxological. You know what a doxology is? It's a praise. It's a hymn to God, praising him for what he's done. We sing the doxology here at Church, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And I think that's what is happening. Paul's reminding us, all these things that happen are only because you've been saved by God's grace. And we'll look more in depth at that as we get to verses 8 and 9 in a couple weeks. Paul's not just about theology. He's not just about filling our heads with the right way to think. 
He's about producing worship in us and praise and giving glory to God. So that's point number one, grace in the past. And now let's look at point number two in verses six and seven and see grace in the future. And it kind of is a mix of past and future, but you get the point. I had to split it somewhere, so this is where I split it. Six and seven, let's read these verses again. I'm going to pick up just before six. So God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What happened when you were saved? If you, if you know Jesus, what happened? Well, I can tell you what didn't happen. You didn't immediately get teleported to heaven and seated at the right hand of God. You're still here, and I'm still here. So what does Paul mean that when we were made alive together with Christ, we were seated? He's using past tense. This happened. Well, what does he mean? We, we aren't there. And I think what he's talking about is something that uh, pastors and scholars for a long time have called positional reality. Paul is talking about positional reality. In the mind of God, our salvation is secure, complete, and finished. There's nothing else that has to be done for you to inherit eternal life. The work has been done. So much so that when we are saved and made alive, our position before God, our standing before God, is that of completeness. Paul writes similarly in Romans 8. And he says this in verse 30. Those whom God predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he, what? Glorified. Well, we aren't glorified yet. This world and our bodies tell us that. So what's he talking about? I think the thing that he's talking about is when we receive salvation from God as a gift, that salvation is so secure, so certain, that Paul can rightly refer to the act of glorification, the final stage of our salvation, as if it has already happened. Because there's nothing, he'll go on to say in Romans 8, that could ever separate you from God's love. Nothing. And therefore, he can speak in confident terms. We have been seated. We have been raised. We have been glorified because of what Jesus has done. And only because of what Jesus has done. Therefore, in Ephesians 2, we read that we have been seated. And Paul says this not to confuse us. He's not after confusing us. He says this to give us hope that there's something better We're headed somewhere as Christians. This isn't all there is. Praise God. There is more coming. And Paul gives us this to give us a glimpse. There's coming a time when you and I, if we are in Christ, will enjoy a perfected creation. We'll worship God with no sin. Can you imagine? (laughs) No distraction. No impure thoughts, no, no something getting in the way of your communion with God. We'll finally love one another the way that we were intended to. 
and for all of eternity, we will experience the grace of God. It's, it's stunning. And as we look at this last verse now, as we move into verse 7, I want you to hear what I'm going to say, what we're going to talk about, and I want you to hold that in contrast to the way our world is right now. I think the reason that this is in the Bible, verse 7, is to give us a glimpse of what is waiting for everyone who hopes in Jesus. You guys know that it's okay to be excited about heaven, right? We don't have to walk around like we're sucking on a lemon. Sour. (laughs) You know what we have to look forward to, don't you? It's okay to be tired of sin. I told myself, don't lose it here. It's okay to be excited. Paul says this in Romans 8. Romans 8, by the way, is the greatest chapter in the Bible. Change my mind. It is the best articulation of salvation, redemption, on oh, the hope of the future. Someday I'll preach through Romans. I don't think I could do it right now. But someday, mark my words, we'll get there. Romans 8, 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, Christians, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I want that. (laughs) I bet you do too. There's something coming. Paul's giving us a taste here. Christians groan, Christians long for, we desire things. Do you remember when you were younger, or kids, maybe this happens right now, when your mom is baking something, cookies or whatever, and you want a taste and you go, hey, can I just have a little taste? And you eat the dough or whatever. It's not the same as the finished product, but it gives you a little hint. gives you a little taste of what's coming. That's what's going on in Ephesians 2.7. Paul is giving us just a taste of what is coming. So let's look at this verse. We could answer the question, why did God make us alive together with Christ? Why did he do it? Here's one reason. Verse 7, follow along with me. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's why you've been made alive. So that you can experience this grace of God. You know, a lot of people wonder what heaven's going to be like. They wonder... Are we going to eat? Are we going to sleep? Are we going to work? Like What what are we going to do up there? Well, for all the things we don't know, the Bible gives us a couple hints, a couple clues. Paul says that in the coming ages, meaning eternity, right? This is the way the Bible talks, the present age and the age to come. That's kind of the divide that the biblical writers use. That in the coming ages, God will display to us the riches of, the wealth and the abundance of his grace. Why do you think that three times in the first 11 verses of the chapter 1, you remember this, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of God's grace, could it be that God is preparing us now to praise him and praise his grace and experience his grace for all of eternity? Could that be a possibility? 
Yes. Everyone go like this. Yes. This is what's happening. We are being prepared now for what's coming. And we get just a taste of that. When we talked earlier about the riches of God's mercy, we said that it means he will never run out. Likewise, here in verse 7, when we see Paul talk about the riches of grace, we know that for all of eternity, years upon years and ages upon ages, we will never see the end of God's grace. Some of you need to hear that and know that right now. Never, never ending. Some of us know people who have come into a bunch of money. Or maybe you hear these stories about people winning the lottery. And for a while, it's great. Life is good. They have everything they want, and then it's gone. And they're right back to where they started. You know what? God didn't win the lottery. He has always possessed in himself an abundance, a never-ending supply of grace, and it will never end. You can't measure it. That's why Paul says the immeasurable, unable to be fathomed amount of grace. And all of that grace will be leveraged towards you in Christ forever and ever and ever. I'm ready to go right now. Let's get out of here. But all in God's time. God is rich in grace. And he delights to show us the riches of his grace now and yet in the future so much more. Do you ever wonder why we're going to need new bodies? You ever wonder why the Bible talks about the glorification not only of our mind but of our flesh, our bone? It's because the grace of God will be so intense that you would expire if you were in your mortal body. We couldn't handle it. But God will glorify your body so that you can experience the fullness of the grace of God. (laughs) Unbelievable. As I was thinking through this text and thinking about the love, the great love and the mercy and the kindness, all of these things, I came across this poem and I want to read just a couple lines for you. It's a poem by J.C. O'Hare called God of All Grace. This is what he says. Think of this in terms of what we've just seen in these four verses. The God of all grace is a wonderful name. What a privilege it is his grace to proclaim. To tell forth the gospel at home and abroad. To teach guilty sinners the great love of God. What love and what mercy, what infinite grace Christ Jesus was willing to die in our place. Then God sent the Spirit to convict us of sin, to make us new creatures and abide then within. And all who trust Jesus of glory are sure, preserved by God's power, forever secure, in Christ, in God's presence, appears for his own and makes intercession as he sits on God's throne. Doesn't that just sum it up? God is a God who delights to show us the riches of his grace. There's one other thing as we come to the end of this text that I want to draw your attention to. Last week I I challenged you or encouraged you to consider your life. Consider things that you're still maybe holding on to that you need to let go of and bring to God. And I hope that you took time to do that. This week I want to show you something by way of comparison. Okay, this is 
a tool that a lot of the Bible writers use. It's showing you darkness compared to light, death compared to life, so on. This week I want to show you this kind of in keeping about what we talked. There's a song that Tim McGraw sings called Live Like You're Dying. And in this song, he tells this fictional story about how he goes to the doctor and gets this news that he's don't know how long he's going to live, but he's probably going to pass away and whatever. So armed with this new information, he goes out into the world and does what the song says and lives like he's dying. He takes a trip and he has an adventure and he you know, for- forgives people he'd been holding a grudge against or whatever. Trying to get every bit of life out of it before he's done. This is a sad but true representation about how the world thinks. The world tells us to get everything we can out of this life because there's nothing coming. You only live once. Take it. Grab it. Make yourself as comfortable and successful as you can because there's nothing coming after. Even some leaders in the Christian world teach what I say is a false gospel of saying that you should make your life as good as you can right now. That is not the point of this text at all. That's not the point of the Bible. Ephesians 2, 7 is here to tell us about the wonder and the glory and the grace that is coming to us in the future. Paul wants us to know there's something on the other side of this life. So my challenge to you is this. Don't buy into what the world sells. Don't buy into the Tim McGraw lie. Live like you're dying, man. Get everything out of this life before you're gone because you don't know. You do know. The Bible tells us what's coming. It's not nothingness. It's not emptiness. It is fullness in Christ. Don't you want it? I mean, what would you rather have? 50 years of fleeting pleasure and empty pursuit and things that don't satisfy with money and sex and work and whatever else. That ain't going to make you happy. Give me 50 billion years of God's grace and take your 50 years. This is what we need. We need an eternal perspective. Now don't hear me say this and think, well, I better sell everything I have and live like a hermit until God comes so we can really see the contrast. That's not the point. I won't let you be a hermit. I'm going to come knock on your door and not a hermit anymore. (laughs) This isn't the point. The point is that we need to be so enthralled with what God has done for us. We need to be so enticed by what's coming that we live our lives differently. Don't live like the world. Don't pull everything you can just to be happy now. You don't need to be happy now. We have all of eternity. Just don't find your satisfaction in the world. Find it in Christ. That's where it's going to be if you're a believer. Start now. And I pray that as a church, God would give us an eternal perspective. We gotta live here. We gotta work. We gotta eat. We gotta move. We gotta do the things we do. But you can do it in a way that keeps an eye on the future. 
You can do it in a way that glorifies God, that gives him the praise that he is due. Oh, that God would give us this perspective. To see the grace in the past and have the confidence that we will experience his grace in the future. Let's pray together. God, I am sorry for the times in my life where I have not kept an eternal perspective. When I've been distracted by the world, by pain, by circumstances, by pleasure. Lord, I repent of these things and pray that in my heart you would work this perspective. By your Spirit, Lord, in our church, in these brothers and sisters, I pray for the sake of Jesus that you would allow us to live our lives in a way that honors you, that keeps an eye on the future. You are coming back soon. We want to be ready. So please make this a reality, Father. Help us to see that you gave us newness of life. You raised us from the dead so that in the coming ages we would know and experience the immeasurable riches of your grace through Christ. I'll make this a reality. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.